all personnel. Incoming podcast. This is MASH Matters. This is MASH Matters, the podcast celebrating the greatest television show of all time. My name is Ryan Patrick, and I am proud to welcome not one, but two stars of the classic television series today. Of course, Jeff Maxwell. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Ryan. This is exciting. We're uh, going to have a wonderful guest. A return appearance. An encore. Yeah. A real true encore appearance. I can't believe she wanted to come back. <laughs> it's stunning, isn't it? I don't know what we did. <laughs> well, I sent her $52,000. Maybe that oh, helped. I don't know. There you go. That's how you got me on the podcast. <laughs> It's true. <laughs> I'm running out of money. We are thrilled, Jeff, to welcome back a very, very special guest. Would you like to introduce our guest? I would. Thank you very much. A very, very, very special guest, a wonderful friend and a wonderful person I've known for many, many years. She is just the greatest. I love her dearly. And her name is Loretta Swit. Loretta Swit, we are so happy to have you back again on MASH Matters. This is your encore appearance. <laughs> we are thrilled that you agreed to do an encore. A lot of people, you know, when we call them and say, would you do that? They lawyer up and we never hear from them again. <laughs> it's, true. it's true. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm thrilled that you might after this still want to do that, but I'm thrilled that you came back. So, hey, welcome back to MASH Matters. You're very funny, but I want everybody to know none of that was true. I just got <laughs> off the phone with a colleague of ours, Jamie Farr, who sends his love, and he would ah. do another MASH Matters. We all would. We're family. You know that. Very true. So we don't, we don't necessarily lawyer up. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> oh, my. Well, I am, just in case. I might as well. <laughs> There's so much to talk to you about, and we could do 14 of these things because there are so many subjects that we could go over. And Ryan and I have talked about it, and your last appearance was so great, and you said so many wonderful things and people just loved uh, everything you said, you know, your insights into MASH and how it worked and how you felt. Those things are so important to uh, certainly our listeners and they want to know all the stuff and all the behind the scenes stuff and all the feelings that went on back then. Sure. We also have some questions that listeners have written to us and we want to get to those uh, sometime as well. Let's begin with your listeners. All right. Hey, Ryan, you want to start with one? You yeah, wanna... sure. So here's the thing, you know, back when you uh, came on MASH Matters the first time, we reached out to our listeners on Facebook and Twitter and said, hey, do you have questions for Loretta Swit? And we had a lot of questions come in. Mm -hmm. Well, we had so many questions, we couldn't get to a lot of them last time. So we have a few of those questions held over from last time. And then we also have some questions from our Patreon VIPs who are uh, supporting the show. Okay. And so I want to start with one of those. All right. This is from Timothy Burleson, and he asks, over the years, you've been well-known for your advocacy and activism for animals. Did your time on MASH in any way influence your views on animal rights, or were those separate endeavors? They weren't separate, uh, but I will say that my advocacy influenced the writers. Mm. I came in with what I had in terms of the advocacy, for example, and the writers were inspired by stuff that we brought to them. Like the minute they found out Gary played those mean drums, it was <laughs> yeah. written into a script. Yeah. They were always using, if you will, us, 
I was heavily into yoga mm -hmm. and I did some yoga position in a uh, hula hands tent yes. and who walks in, but Frank Burns and grabs me and says, Oh, come here, you little yogi or whatever. <laughs> they always found a way, <laughs> they always found a way to use us. And, and, you know, that was a part of the brilliance too, that they could draw from us and uh, use it. I remember standing quite innocently next to Bert Metcalf. We were watching something, uh, you know, scene or whatever. And I said to him, you know, the thing about Margaret, and I loved her dearly, I wish she had a sense of humor. And he said, what are you kidding me? He says, she's so funny. Uh, no, no, no. I said, she's funny to you. You laugh at her. I was hoping that we could develop something where she told some jokes. Oh, he said, I see what you're saying. And then I looked back to watch the scene. And when I looked over at Bert again, he was gone, I'm sure, at a typewriter immediately. And the <laughs> next thing you know, there was a wonderful episode wherein an old friend from nursing school came to visit me mm -hmm. and remarked about how I had quieted down, that I wasn't the reckless, crazy, fun-loving a Margaret that you didn't see, the audience never saw, she did. Mm -hmm. And I explained why I felt I had to be tough and I couldn't be friends with the nurses, I, you know, and, and it went into lonely at the top and so forth. And out of that, Margaret became aware of it and tried to um, fun up, you know, uh, laugh up a little bit. Yeah. And so there was an episode in the supply tent <laughs> with Hawkeye. Yes. And we were so tired. We were exhausted. And we started being so silly and making jokes. And there she was for the first time we saw her making silly jokes. Where's this stupid sofa? It's in the living room. What? The sofa's in the living room between the end tables. Margaret, you made a joke. I told you I was tired. The sofa's in the living room. I can't believe you said that. And um, Kelly came through and said, oh, excuse me, Major. And she like zipped up in a second. We'll go and do it. And she was like the Iron Major, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Hawkeye was writing about seeing that glimpse of joy and fun and happiness in her for the first time saying, I hope it surfaces again. So all of that was genius writing. They were just so brilliant the way they would squeeze us from these juices <laughs> mm -hmm. and it worked. It always worked. Yeah, I guess they got that idea when I brought lunch one time and it was awful. So <laughs> Is that what you think? I guess. I don't know. I, I forgot. Did I answer the question? <laughs> well, the original question was about your animal activism. Okay. So, yes, it worked the reverse is the, um, the, answer. the answer to that. The uh, show didn't enhance my advocacy. Mm -hmm. I brought my advocacy and the writers grabbed it and ran with it. That's um, perfect. I mean, we'll, we'll always be, I think, forever indebted to the way they used us. Yeah. So, Jeff, you were saying you brought your lunch and you thought it inspired <laughs> them. 
to yeah. make you the uh, head chef and bottle washer. I thought the liverwurst sandwiches were good, but I guess they didn't like them. And they thought, <laughs> well, let's make a character out of this. Oh, God. I when I was a kid, you know, long before my vegan days, oh, liverwurst and onion and mustard and oh, oh. please. Oh, Boy, God. did I love them. Wow. <laughs> <Yow. laughs> Maybe that's a Polish thing. Yeah. Liverwurst, onion, and mustard. I, you know, oh, probably boy. not one of my favorites, but I certainly can <laughs> understand some group of people would like that. We do not listen to you when you say what was your favorite. We do not regard <laughs> you as the galloping gourmet. You catch my drift there, Jeff Agor. I get the drift, definitely. You want to tell everybody that your name is Jeff Agor? Yeah. Jeff Agor. I, I love it. I love it, too. You coined that for me, and it's wonderful. <laughs> Jeff Agor, and I love it. Jeff Agor. And you corrected me by when yes, I you spelled it J-E-F-F-I-G-O-R, and you said, no, no, it's J-E-F-I-G-O-R. Well, who best to know? I mean, yeah. it's my word, it's after your, all. That's true. Don't mess with my work. <laughs> Give me another question. Another question from Rob H. Yeah, Rob asks, seems like there was possibly a very light attempt at suggesting there could be a relationship between Charles and Margaret. Any truth to that or am I way off here? Charles Winchester, you mean uh, the characters? Yes. yes. Well, first of all, in her, in speaking for Margaret, if you're that kind of excellent as a surgeon, you already have her. You get her at hello when she sees what you do in the OR because her whole life about excellence and performance and ambition. That's why she has such a rough time in the beginning with the two doctors, first Trapper and then BJ, but the doctors who didn't show her any respect and she admired their skills so much. And the only thing she had over them was her rank. But it was uh, it was uh, an interesting complexity, really, for me to work on as an actor. So Charles comes into um, the uh, 407th, and he is my rank. He's a major. Mm-hmm. Now we see this incredible skill that he has, but he's so in a different group. I mean, he knows music Margaret never heard of. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that we don't we don't have a lot in common these two, <laughs> but there was uh, there was one episode that they wrote where we had dinner for two in my tent. She did love great food and good wine, so they had that in common. You know, yeah, they had an interesting relationship. I mean, she had a beautiful time with him. When he touched those in in the OR and he wouldn't admit it. Yes. <laughs> Everyone out there will recall, you touched your nose. <laughs> you touched, I didn't, you didn't. You touched, oh, yeah. That major, I saw you touch, you know. And then, of course, <laughs> dear, <laughs> dear Potter is getting in there saying she's a good spotter, you know. <laughs> so he kind of took my place there. And then funnier than that scene with our darling Alan Arbus, who was the quintessential head shrink. I go to him and complain about Charles. You know, he's crazy. I say he's a lunatic. <laughs> he touched his nose and he won't admit it. That's crazy, <laughs> right? You know, so, <laughs> so we had that funny kind of thing. But I think they respected each other. I think he was tolerant of how much of a peasant she was. She's an army brat. <laughs> he was not. He was from the hill in Boston. But he, I think, admired her efficiency 
and her ability. And also, he thought his roommates or tent mates were Cretans, and she thought so too. Right. <laughs> Something in common. So they yeah. had that in common. Yeah. And so I would say they were way too different to have any kind of uh, romance. But I do think they liked each other and respected each other. And in the finale, when David put his hand over his heart, he just blew me away. Mm -hmm. And when he gave me the book of poetry and he would do games. See, Charles didn't always want to give in. So they had a big argument about she asked him for the book and he turned her down and they were screaming at each other. And when they were saying goodbye, he gives her the book. So there was this underlying there was more than tolerance. It was a respect. And, uh, you know, Charles and his stiff upper lip and monogrammed caviar found it difficult to uh, be human. Mm-hmm. We caught great glimpses during the show. He fell apart when Radar gave him his ski cap. Yeah. He, he gave money and stuff to the orphanage. And I mean, he was always sneaky about it. He didn't want people to know what a pushover he really was. <laughs> exactly. You yeah. know what I mean? You know, yeah, yeah. the lovely quality. He was not very proud of it. He, was, yeah. he kept that in hiding. You know, that was he was a closet, wonderful guy. You know. <laughs> so you brought this up. And one of our VIPs from Patreon, Lucas Lance, who is from Slovakia, by the way. Oh, wow. He brought up a story that Alan shared after David Ogden Steyer's passed away about something that was written in that book in that final scene. Can you confirm what was written in that book on that final scene? Oh, sure. It, it, it's been around. It's a true story. And it comes from me so okay because it's it's my story i ought to know (laughs) (laughs) so uh, i had been teasing david uh, for years about what a loner he was in terms of mixing outside of stage nine i said you know nobody has your phone number you know we have to call your agent what if i wanted to invite you to a party at my house and um, he would then turn into the character and he'd say, well, obviously I wouldn't go. And, you know, he'd do something <laughs> funny or he'd say, you know, that's why you don't have my number. I don't want to be invited to, a, you know, stuff like that. So we had this running gag because obviously I could get in touch with him, but I did not have his number. Now we have this scene battling over the book of poetry. And um, when he handed me the book, of course, Margaret was very touched that he was giving up this book after teasing her and saying no. So when I opened the book, ostensibly Charles would have written, you know, to Major Margaret, I won't forget you or something lovely. Right. But when I opened the book, it had David's phone number. Mm. Do you still have uh, the book? Do you still have it? uh, No, we didn't get a lot of stuff. Mm. They didn't let us have a lot of stuff. I tell you what, I would love to have some of those paintings. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, some of those paintings of the group, the one I want is the group. Mm -hmm. And I paint, I'm an artist. I would kill to have one of those paintings. (laughs) We don't even have that wonderful stuff we buried. I know. (laughs) Some construction worker has it. I gave up my wonderful (laughs) Japanese robe. 
That really oh. pissed me off. So oh. <laughs> anyway, some big guy named Wally has the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, there. probably. Hey, Bob, look at this stuff I got from Lash. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of painting, yeah, uh, another one of our uh, VIP people, Eric White, says, um, "My question for Miss Swit is: I have enjoyed your art for so many years. When did you start painting, and what prompted you to start?" It's like what prompted you to become an actor. It's all I ever wanted to be. It wasn't even I'm going to try to be or I'm going to study for. Or I, I'm going to be an actor. That was what I was going to be. Uh, I was doodling and, you know, that's what I did. And I was six when I won a cute little art prize. Really? Wow. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it was a grunt or two above doodle. You know, I mean, it was not. Yeah. Yeah. It was not a not a Rembrandt. You know? It was uh, <laughs> nothing you see hanging in the Louvre. No, nope. <laughs> <laughs> but the test, the whatever you know, exam. They did a drawing and they said, you know, see if you can do this drawing and send it in, and you know, it's a valuable prize or whatever. And I begged my mother to send in my drawing you know and so she did and i won oh. and and the very valuable prize was this really interesting bank <laughs> very complicated to get into it i mean you really had to know how to open this bank if you wanted to rob me you know this, this <laughs> it was adorable i kept it for years because it reminded me of that time you know of being so thrilled to win sure i was first i mean i won first prize at this contest <laughs> wow. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. To You're this welcome. day, I could probably draw that little cartoon figure for you Aww. because it was meaningful. Sure. Yeah. It was also very easy for me to do. It really was. <laughs> I think you're always good at what you love, and it's easier to do if you love it. Mm -hmm. Your heart and soul is in it, and you're enjoying it. How could it not be wonderful? Mm -hmm. It's just a theory, you understand. I don't stay up <laughs> nights thinking up. <laughs> you could be wrong. I mean, possibly. I could, oh, I but. could be very wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, uh, entering that art contest sparked something in you, and you kept doing it. And now you have this wonderful book of your paintings, yeah. and the money raised from that book goes to your animal foundation. God, you are so well-informed. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. You know, here's, here, here's the thing uh, to the rest of that question. I don't know that I really did it justice. I, I wasn't driven by winning that contest. I kept doing what I loved doing, which was doodling and drawing and painting and what so. I just did it because I loved it and I don't think of it and I never thought of it as a hobby. And I don't know why, but it just didn't fall into that category. So I kept doing and painting and so forth, but I never took it seriously. So I'll expound on that. Uh, my dear friend, Madeline Rue, probably the best friend of my life. I was picking her up for dinner. We were going to have dinner in the Valley. So I walked in. She said, I'm running so late. I'm so sorry. Here, amuse yourself. I'll be in the shower five minutes. I'll be right back. And she shoved this drawing pad at me <laughs> with a pen or pencil. <laughs> she did that because she was an artist. I mean, a wonderful artist. She painted in oils, which I never have. And I didn't actually know that much about her. I didn't know that 
part of her at all. And she didn't know about me in terms of sketching or doing. She did that as a, you know, have some fun, maybe do a tic-tac-toe. She didn't, she was just kidding. (laughs) And so I sat there and there was a picture of something on her table. And so I drew the picture of it on the pad. And uh, she came out, you know, maybe 20 minutes, whatever it was. And I said, okay, well, I I did this for you. And she swooned. Uh She said, I don't know what to say. She said, I have studied and I cannot do that. (laughs) That you just did. I can't do that. How did you do that? No, it's like, she really boosted my confidence. Here's the thing. Unless somebody tells you that, you take it for granted. Yeah. There's that old joke about the guy who goes to the doctor. The doctor said, well, what seems to be the trouble? I don't know. He said, I feel like maybe I should feel better. And he says, well, tell me about your day. What do you do? And the the man says, well, I get up and I shower, I throw up and I get dressed. And he said, no, 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 I don't mean just today. I mean every day. And he said, I get up, I take a shower, I throw up. And he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) You mean you regurgitate every day? And the man looks at him and says, doesn't everybody? Oh, wow. Yeah. So if you live alone, let's say, which he did, you don't know that that isn't the norm. Mm Mm-hmm. I thought what I did was fine. You know, I mean, I like anybody could do it. Yeah, if it came natural to you, it came natural to everybody. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So Madeline was the one who taught me that lesson. She said, no, no, that's very special. You have a gift. And so to underscore that, that such a lovely friend, God, she was amazing. On my doorstep for Christmas was this beautiful artist easel wrapped in a red ribbon. Uh She really was very instrumental in my continuing, well, really expanding. So I started doing watercolor. Now that in itself is funny because it's the hardest medium. You don't start with watercolor. If you're lucky, you walk, work yourself up to it because it's commitments. You put that brush with the watercolor on your brush, you put that on paper, canvas or whatever. You've committed yourself. That's it. And you need to work fast. You need to be sure. You need to, I don't, I, it's, it's just complex. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I loved the effect of watercolor. I also didn't mind uh, screwing up and starting over <laughs> and learning from the screw up because that's an adventure. And I would watch my paintings improve. You know, everything you learn from the one goof, <laughs> you, your, your painting shows what you've learned. And there's a shadow now. You did a shadow. Oh, I see. That's what gave it depth because I'm self-taught. I never went to school. I never took a lesson. Wow. And Madeline was very firm about don't, (laughs) don't, she said. (laughs) Madeline said, I spent six months learning light and shadow. (laughs) You did it in 20 minutes. She said, please don't, don't screw up your, you know, don't, you know, it's like the best instruction I ever had when I was playing tennis. It was a charity tournament. And uh, I think it was Bernie Capel. He came over to me. He said, throw out of your head everything you've ever learned about form. And, you know, he said, get the ball back over the net. (laughs) (laughs) Hit it. I don't care if you hit it. Standing on your head. Just all you have to do is get that ball back. Great advice. It was the best 
I've ever played. <laughs> uh, we won, by the way, we won. <laughs> you know, so I understood immediately what she meant about that, that there are some things that you don't have to necessarily take the time you know, the six months that she spent learning about yeah. life and dark, you know. Did you, did you ever find any similarity or any, uh, any resonance between the process of acting and painting? Yeah, it's all connected. All the arts are connected. Absolutely. Colors. We talk sometimes when we talk about a character, we talk about a character in colors. I did a, a painting of a lion. Arlene Alda actually saw the uh, original um, thing in a magazine. I did, we used to send my stuff to her. She she loved my work, and she she said, "I like your lion better than the original that I saw." Wow! Because yours seemed to have movement. I mean, I just felt there was movement there that was not in this very static photograph. We just listen to the words, you know, movement mm-hmm. when you're acting and you're either hitting your mark or maybe making a move that is so much the character. Mm-hmm. I think that it's all connected, absolutely. Yeah, and, and certainly doing a character, you, you know, you're trying to uh, give somebody watching that character a certain feeling emotionally, and certainly that's what's happening with the art as well. You want yes. somebody who's looking at your art to feel something. Jeffagor, for example, <laughs> his body language, totally different. From your body language, (laughs) you put on that hat and you become a different person. Yeah. My speech pattern was different. Margaret's speech pattern was different from mine. The timbre of her voice. And I don't mean just the shouting that she did, but I mean, it was different. It was Margaret. Mm -hmm. People used to laugh at the way I said Frank. I made I made it like two syllables. A far rank. You know, (laughs) 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 cracked myself up. But it it came it came out of the character. Mm -hmm. You don't plan. You don't sit the night before looking at the script and say, "Oh well, I'm going to say Frank like this." That's not the way I work anyway. But my big teacher, my wonderful teacher, Gene Frankel, he said, sometimes you need to think about working on a character this way. You take an apple, shiny, delicious looking, wonderful apple. You take a bite in it and boy, it's juicing and you're chewing it and your juices are going down. Now, technically, you don't know exactly what happens as you're chewing it where it's going down the throat, down, it's hitting the gillet, the thing and the stuff, and it's going down here and going through that. But all you know is that once you take that bite and you chew into it, the juices start to flow. Hmm. And when you're working on a character, you're taking a bite into that character and the juices start to flow. And she says, oh, right. Mm-hmm. It comes out of that bite. Yeah, it's natural for the character. Yeah, it just comes out. It just comes from that place. Yeah. Wherever that place is. You know, I, when we do uh, the podcast, we uh, have days that we concentrate on reviewing a particular uh, season. And last we did season five, I think. Is that right? Yeah, season five. Yes. And to remind myself, because I want to participate <laughs> as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> it was a few years ago. <laughs> you're, you're funny that way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, I binge watched you know all uh, all of the episodes from season five, and 
I have to tell you, I you know, I don't I don't want to sound sappy here, but I I mean this from the bottom of my my heart. You were so wonderful in that program. You just were drop dead incredibly wonderful. And and watching you do the scenes and whether you were saying Frank or you were doing any <laughs> of the other moments in there, you were just absolutely perfect. And I, you know, as a as a, as watching it, I was watching it as a fan. And I said, this is why fans adore this woman and love this woman <laughs> and have their lives changed by this woman. I get it. <laughs> I mean, you were a yeah. nice person on the set. I liked you very much, but I didn't quite get it why people were so moved by all the characters, really, in certain certain ways. Yeah. But yeah. To, yeah. to have a, you as a person were able to to do so much with that character, which is wonderful. So as a as as Jeff Agor and a fan now, I hmm. appreciate it. Uh, Thank you very much for that. That, that is you so wonderful, Jeff Agor. But let me say <laughs> uh, the same thing back to you, because I was able to see the work that went into creating that character behind the table with a ladle. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Let, let me begin by saying I have found my niche in life. I'm an actor. This is who I am. This is what I do, and it's who I am. And I see everything that way. Mm-hmm. Patty Duke was the same way. Patty, I called her Anna Banana, but <laughs> people know her as Patty Duke. She she preferred her, her real name, but Anna and I did a film together. And I found out subsequently because I didn't get to read her book until later on. But she talked about our um, camaraderie, that we worked the same way. And that's magic. You know, when when somebody, you you don't see the work, that person is occupying that character. Mm -hmm. It's not a character. It's a Mm -hmm. person. Mm -hmm. So that person in that tall white hat (laughs) and that ladle and fearful (laughs) Terrified. Always terrified that we're going to attack him because of the food. I'm sorry. So I'm still still laughing at that person you created because I picture that person in my head and those goony eyes looking at me like, Major, it's not my fault. It it tastes like that. (laughs) But... You didn't, you know, you didn't even have to say a word. Your face told me everything. You know. Yeah. Thank you. That's very sweet. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, when I watch it, and I do watch our show a lot. I love our show. When I, mm. you know, have the time and I'm around, mm-hmm. Gary Berghoff. Mm-hmm. Gary Berghoff created that cat. Well, of course, he had. He had a heads up. He had, you know, the movie behind him. Right. Talk about a total creation. All during the shoot, I thought of him as a little kid. I mean, I never, (laughs) I never related to him like a person who was married with kids and (laughs) had a mortgage and problems. And I mean, I, I mean, he was so totally into that character, the way he used his glasses or I mean, yes, he, yes, when you're working alongside that or you're eyeballing that you don't get to necessarily appreciate in depth right. as an audience when you're watching that, that, and I'm watching this years later and I'm looking at this creation, this, yeah. this person he created mm-hmm. yep. and you never, it's seamless. You never see the work no. that goes into no. creating that. 
I mean, he was just, he was amazing. But I can go now from person to person, from actor to actor. I can say a lot of the same things about those people, about those characters. And when I give interviews and, you know, they're talking about the character, I say, you know, they weren't cardboard characters. They weren't characters. They were people, the actors who occupied those people made it so real. Mm-hmm. It's why we have a global family. It's why almost 40 years later, or maybe it is 40, people still relate to them like they're real people. Yeah, mm-hmm. They still call them by their names because they were real. Now, why? Because they were real to us. Margaret was a very real person to me. And I feel the same thing, like certainly David created this and he was nowhere like that character mm-hmm. starting with the accent which god oh to commit yourself to do that perfectly week after week and season after season it's remarkable yeah mm-hmm. and then turn around and do king lear on the weekend or go <laughs> yeah. conduct an orchestra somewhere i mean he was a genius yep it was a blessing you and i were in the middle of greatness we were in the middle of a little miracle every day on that set When people say, you know, you have favorite, you know, there was something wonderful about every single day, every single scene, every single episode. It was an incredible experience. And you talk about it and people are like, wow, you had to be there. You would understand. If you were there, you would understand what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And then I always end with, and I was there. (laughs) I was there. I was there experiencing everything that I'm talking about. One of our older questions that we have uh, held over from last time is from Edward Frederick. And and you talk about the experience. Well, now we're going to talk about the experience coming to an end. He says, I know the cast as a whole decided to end the series, but did you personally wish it could go on longer? Or would you have liked to have continued Margaret on a spinoff such as Aftermash? Um, I never thought Aftermash was a good idea. I really didn't. I know it was lovely that they didn't want to leave those characters. Uh, Part of the secret of being successful in that format is that you're in prison. We couldn't leave. Right. We were in the war. We hated being there. We were were insane. And I'll show you how crazy we were. We are going to be nude today. Let's (laughs) come as come as your favorite nude pilgrim party. We we had to. I wasn't there that day. What happened? (laughs) Wow. I missed a good show. No, it was called off because you weren't there. Okay. (laughs) But the, the thing is, you see, these characters, these people, these incredible people, and they were incredible. Anybody in a MASH unit was an incredible hero. Yes. Mostly the women. Mostly the women, I have to tell you. They were there voluntarily. Can you imagine volunteering to be in a place that in the winter is the coldest spot on the planet? And in the, in the summer, the hottest. And they volunteer to be in a place where the death rate is measured by frostbite, snakebite, and then the war. Hmm. But we had to be there. But Aftermath is a VA hospital. Yeah. You're treating the aftermath of MASH. And then, of course, you had to buy into the miracle coincidence of having Harry 
and Jamie and Bill. And right. So right. it's like any great movie that has sequels. The, the sequels, except for The Godfather, because technically it was a story that could be stretched out and out. That's different. But you take something like Jaws, which the first movie was extraordinary. Then all the sequels were kind of laughable. Why? That number one, you had no surprise. You knew what was coming. Yeah. The, the surprise of the enormity of what was happening. You, you didn't have that. And you knew the music by heart. So it didn't scare you quite as much. Or, yeah. Anyway, now, did I want it to end? I don't remember being happy that we were calling it quits. Mm-hmm. I remember understanding not wanting to keep going if we weren't able to retain the spot we were in, the integrity and the the writing. I mean, Larry Gelbart said to me, there are three or four stories in the world. That's it. Everything else is the twist you put on it and the, you change the characters and the things. He says that there are just so many stories you can tell. And I remember Gene said, we don't want to start repeating ourselves. We don't want to tell the same joke. And um, 11 seasons for what we were doing was uh, a hell of a thing. Yeah. Could we have gone to 15? Probably because those people were so extraordinary. But would it have been as good? As it was, we ran three times longer than the war we were talking about. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So you had that to contend. And and because we were so real, you had to think about that Mm -hmm. as a part of reality. So I did not, I was not interested in doing her in a hospital state side. And you know something? I didn't suggest it when they wrote it for me. But in the finale, I said I was going to work in a hospital in uh, the stateside to hospital. There's no way for me, for my brain and Margaret, there's no way that was where she was going. <laughs> if I had my druthers, I'm moving on to the next war. I'm being shipped to Vietnam. Really? That's Margaret. Margaret is a 30 year man. You know, it's interesting you say that because I kind of, I, I, when I heard that in that episode, I went, eh, I really did. I thought, no, that doesn't sound right. Jeff, Jeff they were wrapping it up. They were wrapping it up. They were giving everybody little cute things. I'm going to be the best nurse Oklahoma ever saw. I want to deliver babies. I've seen enough death. You know, they were making everything, you know, they're tying it up. Yeah. But I blame myself. I should have said, guys, I don't buy that. I don't believe that that's what I would be doing. But, you know, you don't want to be a pain in the ass all the time. (laughs) (laughs) But that's okay. That's okay. And it worked and it was nice and it was fine. There were a lot of things that I could talk about in retrospect that I would have, and having nothing to do with me, but I saw differently and we could have tried to do something like that differently. For example? Oh, well, Jeff and I talked about that jokingly uh, this morning. Why wasn't there maybe a little romance with Jeff and Kelly, hmm. for example, or or Jeff and Enid? or Je- I mean, I, mm-hmm. I think it would have been nice to see that slice of life in the camp with our other people, not the featured players, but, you know. Is there any possibility we can do that? I mean, is there any? <laughs> can we, uh, you, you have a lot of heat. You can call people, anybody. Uh, let's try. I'm ready. <laughs> 
but you you know what I mean, you know. Uh, yeah. Or 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 even um, dear Ed Winters. Oh yeah. Uh, like the, him coming in and maybe having a crush on Lori or uh, Gwen or I don't know. Mm, not, sure. I don't know. Just yeah. something really kind of different to include those people who were in the camp with me every day. Yeah, certainly a good idea. I'm I'm for it if you can <laughs> get any of that done. <laughs> so in answer to that question, uh, no, I didn't want to go on to Aftermash. And and between the end and two years and then the end, I had the opportunity to do my own series in Cagney. Mm-hmm. I, I was ready to attack another character, a, a different character. Yeah. And I loved initially that she was in uniform. And my brother said, People love to see you in uniform. He said, do the, do the cop, you know. <laughs> what, what ultimately happened, uh, Cagney and Lacey, what ultimately led to your decision to stay with MASH instead of doing the series? Right. I didn't push to do it. Fox and CBS didn't want to let me go, and it happened to be the same network. Hmm. So you're saying to CBS, let me out of here. I want to do this other thing on your network. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's interesting that it's only then they make you feel valuable. (laughs) Like, no, no, we we can't lose you. (laughs) I kind of left it to the fates. I was afraid to want to leave. I didn't want to leave MASH. Mm -hmm. I wanted to see it through. And I've always been a long run person. I've done 1500 performances of Shirley Valentine. Mm-hmm. I've always taken on MAME in different areas, but I've always been anxious and, and willing to do a character and keep working on a character. I did not, after all the time already I had put in to the army and the uh, mobile army, I couldn't see myself leaving. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an episode where I thought I might be pregnant and uh, we were very careful about making sure I wasn't. Right. It was that, of course, that I, I'd have to leave. Um, I just never saw myself leaving. And I was committed. I did sign up for the run. You know, I, yeah. I, and when we shot the movie, I told them then I would not be available. And I remember the producers were uh, kind of dismayed that I wouldn't because uh, they had tried for seven years or whatever to get it on, to get the, the pilot on or movie, whatever. And uh, they tried every that. Listen, they tried Raquel Welch. I mean, they were offering all kinds of people. And for whatever reason, CBS said yes when, when I said I would like to do it. Because Cagney and Lacey did start out as a made-for-TV movie. It was a very successful movie. Yeah. It was a very successful movie. Because it was a good movie. It was a good story. Yeah. And uh, we had some good people. But uh, anyway, I have, in retrospect, I have to say, did absolutely the right thing for me. Mm-hmm. I, I just absolutely uh, have never, ever regretted not there. I mean, can you imagine missing, Jeff, you know what I've that you to imagine missing the finale. Yeah. Oh my word. How could I not be a part of that incredible experience? I mean, to, to be there sitting, remembering the first day sitting in the office with Gene and Wayne and, you know, I, I, I mean, it was a life. I was like walking 
out of your life before it was over. Well, we're going to stop here. I know you want to hear the whole interview, and you will hear the whole interview. You will hear the conclusion of our talk with Loretta Switt in the next episode of MASH Matters. And I tell you, part two has some really, really fun stuff. In fact, I think we even talk about the Muppets in part two. Yes, it's going to be very revealing. So get the children out of the room. It's not going to be anything salacious. Don't worry. Uh, We're not going to taint the memory of the Muppets. We don't want to taint the Muppets. No, (laughs) absolutely not. We want to say thank you to our Patreon VIPs who help make this show possible, including Corporal Jamie Forbes, who's from Australia. Thank you, Jamie. And Corporal James Coulter. Captain Brian Berg. And Captain Robert Lythe or Lathe or Lethe. Or Lithy, or Lady Lady, <laughs> and Robert Lady is from Norway, and we're not sure how to pronounce his name. So, well, um, you know, it's funny. I reached out to Robert and I said, "Hey, Robert, how do you pronounce your last name?" And he essentially said, "You know, I'm not really sure how it translates to English, so just say it any way you want to." So, I think you covered all of them. There, I think Jeff. I got most of them. Yeah, I think so. Also, <laughs> Captain Eric Angler, he is our resident Klinger cosplayer who has sent us several pictures of him in dresses. And we appreciate those pictures, Eric. <laughs> Eric was recently promoted from corporal to captain. So congratulations on your promotion, Eric. Ryan likes the pictures a little better than I do, Eric. But <laughs> I won't go into that. And we'd like to thank Major Priscilla Ross. Yes. Thank you, Priscilla. Thank you, Major Ross. Yes. And thanks to everybody who supports us on Patreon. You too can get in on the fun. Just go to mashmatters.com slash support. Little hand for our Patreon supporters. Thank you for listening. You can connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. And now, Jeff, we're on Instagram. Holy moly, this is an exciting day. Uh, A talk with our beautiful, wonderful friend, Loretta Sweat, and... The announcement, we are on Instagram. Oh, so exciting. I have to sit down. You can also find us at our website, mashmatters.com. You can email us, mashmatterspodcast at gmail.com. And you can call and leave a voicemail under three minutes in length at 513-436-4077. Part one was great. Part two is going to be even more fun, Jeff. Boy, I can't wait. Part two with Loretta Swit coming up. Until next time, here's looking up your old address. 